0: You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast. Interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Joshua Brown, welcome to Real Faith Stories. I think we're going to have a lot of fun on this episode.
1: Yeah, thank you, brother.
0: I'm already amazed at the conversation we've had prior to this podcast episode about your life. And I'm really looking forward to you sharing your backstory and how God delivered you and moved you through a ministry season and then into becoming what you are lovingly known as the pressure-washing pastor. So, Joshua, please share some of your backstory and let's talk about how you moved over the years into this position that you're in now.
1: Yeah, thank you, Brian. I'm honored that you would invite me into this conversation. When you talk about who is Joshua Brown, it really does start off with my mom in Kalamazoo, Michigan. At the age of two, she was adopted from Kalamazoo into Madison, Tennessee, which is a a small little area inside of Nashville. Nashville has some really nice areas, and then it has some areas that aren't so nice. Madison is known a little bit as the ghetto. Some people do have a great story when they get adopted, and then my mom would be the other side of that. By the age of 13, and this is important to really dial into, her adopted dad would go to jail for the things he was doing to her inside the home, Mm. and that her mom was addicted to pain medication and alcohol. So I want you to think about a 13-year-old that has been adopted from her family to a home that was supposed to love her and nurture her to end up... Abusing her. By the time she's 15 years of age, she ends up getting pregnant from a dude who is 21. And when my father found out that my mom was pregnant, he said, I'll pay for his abortion, but I won't be in his life. And so my mom ultimately had a decision to make either to take a what would see like the easy road and the no-brainer, because she had no family support. She had no boyfriend support 21 she's 15 and she ends up saying yes and then a week or two goes by and she says i can't she goes to my dad's mom's house and says you know frankie my dad has got me pregnant frankie's mom said you're a whore and i'm sorry to use this language on your podcast i'm just trying to build the context of my mom and what decisions that she made She said, you did this on purpose to get my 21-year-old married to you. A 15-year-old did this on purpose to a 21-year-old, right? Man. And so she ends up having no support, chooses to give me life anyway. Later on, I said, hey, mom, why did you choose to give me life when you had nothing? She said, I had never loved anything. And if I had the ability to love something, I was going to love you. Wow. Mm. I get emotional almost every single time I, I tell this story because I recognize that this 15-year-old girl, who I would say is being led by God, chose to give life from the beginning. And that decision did not equal unicorns and confetti. It equaled the streets, projects, soup kitchens, church fellowship halls, boyfriends, abuse from place to place to place. By the time I'm 17, I'm a drug dealer, pothead, high school dropout in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm kind of like thinking I'm living a good life until I end up getting in a really bad car wreck. I was following a friend of mine named Pookie. He had a 3000 GT Stealth. He ran a yellow light, taking a left. I ran a red light, taking a left. I had a little Honda Prelude, four 10, four mids some alpines. I don't know if you remember you know, oh, yeah. big systems and so forth. And when I run the the red light taking a left, there is a, a Ford Ranger running the red light going straight. It was almost like a scene out of Dukes of Hazard because it was at the crest of a hill. And that truck went through my front windshield. Everything came in on top of me, like my dashboard. And I had a green stripe all the way down the side of my shirt from the paint on that truck. And as I sat there on the side of the road, watching my car get towed away, I denied medical attention because I had drugs inside my system. I feel like at that moment, that is when God started to to speak loud enough for me to hear him. And the voice was this, Joshua, you're wasting your life. If I would have died in that moment, I was making no difference in anyone's life. And that thought, for whatever reason, haunted me to where I showed up to the last night of a revival at a Wesleyan church with my girlfriend. And while I'm inside of church, I'm at the very back of it. I'm obviously the ghetto kid that showed up on the last night of revival. I'm sure looking back on it, everybody was like, you know, praying and and like, he's here. It was known that I was a dope man. And I didn't see it like that. I was just hungry for something. And while sitting in the back of that pew, I remember hearing God speak to me. And that voice wasn't, Joshua, you're going to hell. It wasn't, Joshua, you're a loser. It was just, Joshua, I love you. That message propelled me. And I'm like, I look at my girlfriend and I say, I wish the pastor would stop speaking and just invite. and open up the altars because back then you went to the altars to do work with God and I was ready to do work with God and he finally stopped speaking he opened up his altars I went down I gave the pastor my pot gave God my heart and that was 27 years ago I ended up marrying that girl went back to school got a GED pastoral ministries degree Christian counseling asked to be discipled they put me in Bible school And that would start 22 years of vocational ministry.
0: Let me just pause here and summarize what I've heard so far, Joshua. So obviously your mom is 15 years old. She gets pregnant by a 21-year-old, Frankie, and decides not to have an abortion. That results in, because of no support, basically you living on the street for the majority of your life up until at least 17. Is that right?
1: I would say up until 13, 14, and it would be like the streets, sometimes projects, sometimes cars, sometimes soup kitchens, sometimes different dudes that she would connect with. Because when you're a young mom, you're just trying to find somewhere to sleep or some way to support your child.
0: And then after the car accident, that was the major wake-up call that propelled you, motivated you to go to this church where you heard the love of God like you've never heard it before. And so after that experience at 19, it sounds like you pivoted very quickly to get your GED and then got into youth pastoring, correct?
1: Yeah, that's what happens when you when you get radically transformed, <laughs> is that the church invites you to start teaching Sunday school class. And I appreciate all the the story and history inside of that. But really, I was asking to be discipled. And the church's formation for discipleship where I was at was ministry. And so I ended up on a fast track to ministry.
0: So that was how many years of your life?
1: 22 years I was in vocational ministry.
0: And when did you marry your wife?
1: Mm, 1997, 98, sorry. We just experienced 25 years two weeks ago. Congrats. We were already dating for three or four years prior to getting married. Mm -hmm. And we had that Romeo-Juliet relationship where her parents absolutely hated me with good reason. They used to flick me off and say that four-letter word will never enter into our home. I would pick her up at school. We would skip. She'd spend the night at my place when she said she'd be spending the night at somebody else's. And so I'd hate me too. (laughs) You know, I had a warrant, I had a uh, restraining warrant on me, which I would do too. And uh, her parents, Hated me. But when I got saved, I knew that for me, making all of my wrongs right was a way to respond for righteousness. And so, like, I didn't want anything in this life to be in in misalignment with harmony. For everything that I knew, I wanted it to be at peace and not what's the opposite of peace, Brian? Turmoil. Yeah, and not turmoil. And so I called her dad and I wrote her mom a letter and said, I will no longer see your daughter without your permission. And my girlfriend, my wife now, she said, well, that's that. This relationship is over. And man, by the grace and miracle of God, her parents ended up asking Jennifer, what's his pants size? We want to invite him over for Christmas. (laughs) And it is amazing because like scripture says, acknowledge the Lord in all your ways and he'll make your paths straight. Mm hmm. I didn't take that as like a parable. (laughs) I took it as a, a principle to live by. And so I did not want to do anything that I didn't think that God wouldn't want me to do. And well, if I want to have a wife, I don't want her parents to hate me. And so I basically asked for permission. And that was a way of me surrendering that relationship back to God, for him to choose whether or not we continue to pursue each other or I go a different direction, and my hands were completely off. I was like, whatever God wants, he gets.
0: That is so instructive for like anything in life, isn't it? Yes. Lord, I'm giving this to you. I open my palms up to you. If you want this to happen, you're going to allow it to happen instead of you driving it, right?
1: Yes, sir.
0: What an amazing transition with her parents. Then you got married. How long after the pants were given to you at Christmas?
1: <laughs> I would say probably less than a year or so. My wife was 18. I was actually 20, almost 21. And so just a short amount of time, we ended up getting married. I'd say about a less than a year, probably.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, of course, ministry for a couple decades. Was your wife involved in that with you as well?
1: Yeah, if you're in ministry, you feel like you're in it together. So that also came with a lot of emotional baggage and experiences where some were good, some were not so good. I worked at seven different churches in four different states over the course of that 22 years, met a lot of great people, but it's also very hard on a family to go through a lot of transitions like that.
0: What was the high point for you during that period of time? And what was the low point for you? Can you share that?
1: I, I feel like the lows were lower than the highs. And and so for us, the highs would be in Raleigh, North Carolina. I was in my 30s, and we built great relationships with folks inside the church. And we just loved youth ministry and loved that church. And as the, the church loved us. Now, it doesn't mean the churches that we we're at before then, we didn't have good experiences. But when you say the high, we were very intentional inside of ministry and building relationships. And I also matured during that time as well. Inside of my faith, where I'd say there'd be a lot of immaturity. And then I met some folks that spent a lot of time reading God's word and applying it. So I started to spend a lot of time. Podcasts came out during this time. So, and, and whether you like them or not, I really grew a lot underneath Mark Driscoll's Mars Hill Church and started taking my faith and discipleship serious. I had three young girls, and so started family driven faith with Vadi Bakum. And so I spent a lot of time being an intentional father and disciple in the home, in the church, and then ended up having 10, 11 guys that would meet on Monday nights at my house for prayer and just spending time with Jesus. And so that would be like the pinnacle. And the biggest valley would have happened about six months to a year after that peak. And it was when things didn't work out like I thought they were going to work out. I felt like I was basing my life on something that didn't exist. How do you mean? Just to be honest with you, I was in a long interview process with Mars Hill Church, and they told me they were going to be bringing me out to be a campus pastor, and I felt like God was leading it. He was in it. I was reading, reflecting, recording, and responding inside of Scripture, and every time I get out of Scripture, I would be like David, and my lead pastor at that time would be Saul. Where I I felt like if I said to him, hey, I'd like to to plant a church or I'd like to do this, he would make statements. You're never going to do that here or don't tell anybody that you want to do that. And I didn't understand why a pastor wouldn't want to either plant churches or make disciples. Hmm. During that time, the denomination I was a part of, some of the professors were teaching the people in the Old Testament weren't real people. And I'm like, how do you allow professors to teach at your university that's creating seminary students that the people in the Old Testament aren't real people? And so I started villainizing the denomination and really my pastor that I've served with for a long time. And then I started idolizing Driscoll and others, Piper and Chandler and Keller. And, and so I was villainizing my denomination while idolizing another's the X29 network. Mm -hmm. And then when they didn't hire me and stopped talking to me and I had no idea what happened, I felt like God left me. I felt like I was abandoned. And so a dude that really believed by faith that this thing was going to happen and it didn't happen. I associated the lack of things that took place as a reflection that maybe I'm wrong. Maybe God doesn't exist. Because he didn't make this thing happen that I thought he was doing. And I thought I was innocent in the moment. And I felt like his presence and his spirit was gone.
0: What a crisis.
1: Yeah. To unpack it, I was having anxiety attacks, which I thought something was wrong with my heart. I wanted to commit suicide during this time. Looking back at it, I'm like, what in the world was I thinking? But I literally did not want to live because I felt like everything that I was living for was pulled out from underneath me and I did not know where to stand.
0: How did you get back to your faith?
1: I think it was a year and a half to two years of just some days putting one foot in front of the other, but not knowing. I had a friend that did come to me and shared with me, you can't give up. And I know that sounds like like duh advice, but when you feel like you have nothing to give and someone just says, hey, you can't And then I kind of create a purpose statement to finish this life, a godly man, husband, and father. I went through something called uh, a life plan by Michael Hyatt years ago, and I created a mission statement that said, I'm going to finish this life, a godly man, a godly husband, and a godly father. Those were things I could control, and I couldn't control where I worked at. I couldn't control what went up, what went down. Like I just knew that these are the things that. When life is said and done, it's not going to be a result of my hands and the people that are around my casket. I hope they will say there lies a godly man, a godly husband, and a godly father. So my purpose statement is to that end. And the faith part came as time came, but it definitely reshaped who I am today versus who I was yesterday Because who I was yesterday, 10, 15, 20 years ago, I could understand everything because I thought I knew everything. But today I realize I don't know everything. I don't understand everything. But I just want to love God and to be loved by God. And so it's less about understanding and more about knowing today.
0: What a way to get there. But it's a precious place to be, isn't it?
1: Heartache and trouble means things didn't work out the way that we thought they would work out or should work out. But take heart, we are not of this world. So like putting our faith back into what we don't understand and inside of just a person versus a plan is a lot safer place to be.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, then at the end of this 22 years, you got involved in business. Let's talk about that transition, Joshua.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you asking. After 22 years of ministry, it was really about year 16, 17, I started getting frustrated being in ministry. And when I use the word ministry, you almost have to define that now because the way that I was raised inside the church was that ministry is what took place inside the church. So the answer to go make disciples was invite them to our programs and events so you can end up teaching them God's word. Well, when you think of discipleship or pastoring or shepherding, it's really a reflection of a life on a life where you invite people to follow you as you follow Christ. And if discipleship is best life on a life, I was only getting an hour and a half to two hours a week with students. And so I felt like I was being controlled to grow a local Ecclesia versus going and making disciples where I ended up trying to figure out what can I do to provide for my family if I'm not working inside the church because I'm no longer satisfied working inside the church. I'm kind of dissatisfied because I'm running just programs and events. I love the people, but I'm burnt out on programs and events. I wanted to do something more. I was a 19-year-old drug dealer pothead that said yes to the gospel. I'm not wanting to run a show. I'm wanting to run Ministry, but I didn't know what that looked like, and so I ended up googling top five businesses to open for five thousand dollars or less. And photography was on there. I wasn't loving cats at the time, <laughs> and so taking pictures of people's cats didn't seem that attractive to me. Although, have you tried to get a wedding photographer lately?
0: Thankfully, no, but that's in the future.
1: <laughs> yeah, but there was another one that was pressure washing, and I had a friend that opened up a business. He pressure washed. I went worked with him for a half a day. And in half a day, he made more legal money than I had ever seen. He made $800 in four hours. And my mind just was blown. And I was like, I think I can do this. This is not rocket science. And so I asked him if I could make a trailer and if he would help me. And he was so gracious to do that. And I went back to Nashville, Tennessee while in ministry. And for the next three and a half, four years, I would run a pressure washing business while working my full-time student ministry job. And year one, we did 225000 443000 year two, 700 and change in year three, and almost a million dollars in year four. And then by year four, I felt like it was safe to leave ministry inside the church. And when I left ministry, I had an identity crisis because I didn't know who I was outside the position of a pastor inside of a church. And it took me about six months to a year and a half to realize that the church buildings, structures, they don't own ministry. That's God's business. Ministry is something that takes place wherever God is and wherever we are, God is. And so according to 1 Corinthians 5.18, those who have been reconciled to God through Jesus Have also been invited into this ministry of reconciliation that God is making a plea to man through us to be reconciled to himself through the blood of Christ, right? Yeah. But I didn't know that I was still a pastor outside of the pulpit. And I went to a secular event. It was called the BBB, stands for Bourbon, BS, and uh, Business. And I was there for the business. I wasn't there for the other two. But while there, the secular folks, said you're the pressure washing pastor (laughs) yeah so they labeled it i love it they saw in me something i didn't see in myself because i thought i was no longer a pastor because i no longer had a pulpit or a church our calling is not connected to a vocation it's connected to an identity but i did not know that it's not until i started moving towards this thought that last year i said god we've done over a million dollars. What do you want me to do next? He said, do for others what I've done for you. And so I'm like, okay, how does that work? Well, let's open up the Chick-fil-A of pressure washing. Let's invite other kingdom-minded believers, maybe former pastors, maybe vocational pastors that have different gifts and abilities, but people who love Jesus that want to make disciples, invite them into this brand of Brown's pressure washing and then help them do what I've done for you there. And so now we've launched this thing called Ministry in the Marketplace because ministry is not limited to the four walls of a church. Ministry is something that can take place in all avenues of life, even inside of business, which many people don't allow God into their business now that I've been in it for seven years.
0: This transition to inviting other people into your orbit and teaching them how to do this, how's that been going?
1: So, we just started this year, and we're building it out. I feel like God has opened up the doors and sent people that have this similar ethos. And so, if we can find folks that are gospel-centered, faith-driven servant leaders that's our perfect characteristic. And so like, as I speak right now, we have a guy here from Houston, Texas, that's getting trained to go back and open up Browns Pressure Washing in Houston, which Houston is a massive city. We could have multiple locations in Houston. We've opened up Birmingham. We've opened up Chattanooga. And then we've got two or three more that are in the pipeline. And we haven't really been pushing what it looks like it's really happening through sharing on podcasts and people getting word of mouth, but it's something that we're excited about, and the real excitement is it can bring income, but more importantly than income, it can make impact, and the goal for my life is to make impact with as much life as God gives me left and invite other people that want to make impact while making income onto this journey.
0: So thus far, what's been the biggest learning that you've had?
1: I think if you ask me, like, the biggest thing in life is that you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are, so you better be careful on who you're becoming. And so, like, the biggest overarching life leadership conversation I would give is like, man, you're nothing if you don't spend time in the vine, if you don't spend time with Jesus. Like, at the end of the day— who controls our thoughts control what we talk about. And what we talk about produces fruit. And man, if there's one lesson, or overarching general conversation, there's nothing greater than we can do to spend time with Jesus. Like that gives birth and validity to every single thing else that we do. What is it if man gains the whole world but loses his soul? What if you end up growing an empire, but your family doesn't even know who you are? Like that stuff matters. People want to know what you know. But man, who you are impacts them greater than what you know. Now, I'm a cross-country track coach at a local school here and like a, as an assistant. And who you are ends up impacting who they become. And so making sure that you're spending time with God is the biggest win that we can have.
0: How can people find out more about you, Joshua?
1: So right now it's pressurewashingpastor.com. You can, of course, check out brownspressurewashing.com if you're wanting to see what a pressure washing business looks like. We have a YouTube channel called Brown's Pressure Washing where we're giving away tips and tricks. Man, in my mind, I'd love to be the largest network of pressure washing pastors in the country, where we have people that are active in ministry inside of the marketplace. So pressurewashingpastor.com is how you can schedule a meeting with me and find out a little bit of information on what we're doing is the best place to get in touch with me.
0: Perfect. As we finish here, we'd love to have you pray for our listeners, please.
1: Well, let's pray. God, as we wait, as we listen, we want to make sure that we're tuning into you and not into ourselves. And so, God, right now, I ask that you identify areas of our lives that are not underneath your lordship and your authority. And so, Father, right now, bring about in everybody's mind that's listening anything that's not underneath the lordship and control of you, God. God, convict us of that. Help us to repent from it and to surrender that thing that has become an idol to us over to you for your lordship and your control, God. If there are relationships for dudes or or, or ladies are inside of that need to be broken Ask right now that you give the strength And the vision and the wisdom to break off Any relationship that's not underneath your lordship uh, Father if there's money That's going out to things that are, are Fruitless help us to identify Those things and surrender them Unto you oh god father if there's Any influences that are inside of our life Whether it's people whether it's programs Whether it's identity issues God ask that you Identify that as well And help us to just put it underneath your control. And God, uh, ultimately, we open up every part of our lives. We open up our hands right now to signify that you can have this life back. And we give it to you as an offering, God. We desire to be living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to you. So may it be evident in the way that we carry on the rest of today. And Father, I ask that your spirit would just speak in a mighty way. Anytime that we're involved in something that doesn't honor you or glorify you, because what's not underneath your lordship is ultimately something that has the power to destroy what you desire to do. And we want to see your kingdom lifted high. and We want to see you exalted because our hearts and our minds are most satisfied in you when we spend time with you. So we ask that you would do it in a mighty way. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you so much, Joshua.